I'm Dr. Jeff Donovan, and you're listening to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. A big welcome, everyone, to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. This is Season 4, Episode Number 2. The Evidence-Based Hair Podcast was produced by the Donovan Hair Academy and highlights new research in the field of hair loss. The Evidence-Based Hair Podcast was created for hair loss practitioners. It was created for practitioners around the world who care for people with all different types of hair loss. For those who simply find the topic of hair loss as intriguing and fascinating as I do, well, I really hope this podcast will be of interest as well. Each week, I'll review a handful of research studies that are changing how we think about hair loss. I'll introduce them to you, I'll help you digest them, and I'll give you my thoughts on how a new study just might be changing how we diagnose or treat hair loss. These are studies in androgenetic hair loss, alopecia areata, telogen effluvium, traction alopecia, trichotillomania, scarring and non-scarring alopecia. The Evidence-Based Hair Podcast was created for new practitioners as well as the well-seasoned expert. This podcast was created for all those who help all those with hair loss. It was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. Today, it's my great pleasure to review five studies with you. For those of you who want a brief overview, a five-minute summary, a succinct, concise, shortened, compacted, just give me the nuts and bolts already type of overview, well, we'll give that to you now. And for those of you who want a bit more detail, for those of you who want a great amount of more detail, and for those of you who feel you need to know all these studies with some great depth in order to figure out how to incorporate the new information into your practice, well, I'll share that in the discussion that follows. Thanks for joining me on this incredible journey. We'll not only review these five studies, but we'll review how all this new information ties in with what we've come to learn in the past. Today, we'll be reviewing studies that are a mix of studies published in the last month or two. So let's begin with a quick summary of these five studies. The first study is a truly wonderful study. It's a simple study, but yet elegant study which has very important messages for us all. It's a study which looked at the role of scalp biopsies in black women with hair loss. And what it teaches us is that we all should have a low threshold for performing scalp biopsies. We're missing a lot of patients with scarring alopecia, alopecia areata, and perhaps other conditions. We're overcalling traction alopecia. And perhaps we are sending patients home with the feeling that they have many diagnoses when in fact maybe they only have one or two diagnoses. There's an incredible role for biopsies in black women with hair loss, and I think this is an important message, that the diagnosis was often changed when patients had a biopsy. So we need to have a low threshold to say, I think it could be this, I think it could be that, but let's do a biopsy. We don't need it in all patients, but we need to be humble to the fact that we need to have a low threshold to say, let's do a biopsy. So we'll take a look at that together. Then we'll look at a nice study looking at the role of oral minoxidil in patients with hair loss after chemotherapy and after endocrine therapies for breast cancer. We know that not all patients get their hair back after chemotherapy. 
We call that persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia, and it's famous for the taxane group of medications. In addition, some medications, like the aromatase inhibitors and the selective estrogen receptor modulators, cause hair loss. This study looked at what's better, oral minoxidil and topical minoxidil, or topical minoxidil alone. And what it showed us in this very nice study from South Korea is that the combination of topical minoxidil and oral minoxidil seemed better than topical minoxidil alone. And we'll take a look at this study. Then we'll look at a type of skin cancer called folliculotropic mycosis fungoides. This is a group of cutaneous T-cell lymphomas. And these are not common types of skin cancers, but they are seen and they can present on the scalp. And they are incredible mimickers of various conditions. And we'll take a look at this study of follicular tropic MF, and I'll review this with you and highlight some key pearls from this study and other studies in the literature, which teach us a whole lot about follicular tropic MF and this skin cancer called mycosis fungoides in general. It's probably more common than we realize, and I suspect that many patients in their 60s, 70s, and 80s are being misdiagnosed. Mycosis fungoides is tough to diagnose sometimes. Dermatomyositis is tough to diagnose sometimes. But I think we need to be aware that when we see patients with hair loss, new hair loss in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, especially 65, 70, 75, and 80, I think we need to pause and take a breath and say, I wonder, I just wonder if this is an unusual condition. I think that type of mentality is really important because that allows you to be in the frame of mind where you can pick up cutaneous T-cell lymphoma in your patient with what seems like alopecia areata, but it's a bit scaly. They've got these bumps and papules on their abdomen or their leg or their arm or their neck. So we'll take a look at that. Folliculotropic MF. And then we'll go on to talk about a very interesting study dealing with atrichia with papular lesions or APL. Atrichia with papular lesions is a genetic condition whereby individuals inherit a mutation in the hairless gene. Mutations in the hairless gene can lead to atrichia with papular lesions, and it can also lead to another condition called alopecia universalis congenita, not to be mistaken with alopecia areata universalis, the autoimmune condition, despite the similar sounding names. So we'll take a look at this very nice report of atrichia with papular lesions. We'll talk about this condition, and we'll talk about how it differs from alopecia areata universalis, the autoimmune condition that we're all very familiar with. We need to know atrichia with papular lesions. We need to know alopecia universalis congenita. We need to know these conditions associated with a mutation in the hairless gene because they will fool you into thinking this is the autoimmune condition, alopecia areata. And so we'll take a look at this study. Then we'll take a look at a very important study looking at the risk of fibrosis with methotrexate. One of the feared complications of methotrexate all these years has been fibrosis in the liver. We'll take a look at an important study which teaches us that the length of time someone is on methotrexate, the amount of methotrexate they use, may not correlate so well with their risk of fibrosis. And it may, in fact, be other factors inherent to the patient, like whether they have diabetes, whether they're obese, whether they consume alcohol, whether they have other metabolic syndrome risks. 
that contributes to the risk of liver fibrosis. So we'll take a look at this very important study of liver fibrosis in methotrexate patients, a study which comes to the conclusion that the link between this drug and liver fibrosis is less of a risk, perhaps, than we thought. The references for all these studies are in the show notes that accompany this episode. So I begin by a very nice study in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology in January, titled, Scalp Biopsy Influences Diagnostic Accuracy and Treatment in Black Women with Alopecia, a Retrospective Study. I really like this study. It's a simple study, an elegant study, but it has some important messages. So the authors from Philadelphia set out to investigate the role of scalp biopsies in the diagnosis and management of hair loss in black women. So they performed a retrospective chart review of all black women 18 years of age and over with a diagnosis of hair loss. There's 420 patients in the study. A third of them were diagnosed with more than one type of hair loss. You have many types of hair loss. 18% were not given a specific diagnosis. 18% were given a diagnosis of alopecia areata. 12% of these 420 patients were given a diagnosis of traction alopecia. And CCCA, or central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia, was a diagnosis in 10%. What I want to review here is just how often a scalp biopsy changed the diagnosis. How often a scalp biopsy changed the diagnosis that it was thought that the patient had. So 40 of these 420 patients underwent biopsy. The most common diagnosis before having a biopsy was multi-type alopecia, CCCA. But a biopsy changed the diagnosis 70% of the time. The most common diagnoses after having a biopsy became CCCA in 27.5% of the time, followed by other scarring alopecias. The most common non-scarring alopecia became alopecia areata. So after having a biopsy, patients that were originally felt to have multiple diagnoses decreased from 50% to 5%. Patients who had no specific diagnosis, we don't know what you have, disappeared, and everybody left with a diagnosis. Traction alopecia decreased from 38% to 5%. So fewer and fewer patients left the clinic with a diagnosis of traction alopecia when a biopsy was done. And for patients who initially were thought to have traction alopecia but then had a biopsy and the diagnosis was changed, the new diagnosis was scarring alopecia in 70%, alopecia areata in 20%, and psoriasis in 10%. So there's a whole lot of patients with traction alopecia that is actually scarring alopecia or alopecia areata that's fooling us. Alopecia areata can have a fringe sign. Alopecia areata can present bilaterally in the temples. And it can be tough to differentiate, absolutely. Over 75% of patients whose biopsy led to a change in their diagnosis, had a change in their treatment plan. I like this study a lot by Douglas and colleagues in the JAD. It's a wonderful study which reminds us just how important biopsies are in black women, and we should have a low threshold to performing biopsies in black women with hair loss. I think that is such an important message. Certainly, I feel that any black woman presenting with central hair loss 
who's felt to have anything but CCCA needs to have a biopsy. I receive hundreds and hundreds of referrals from patients with central hair loss, black women with central hair loss, and the diagnosis is thought to be androgenetic hair loss or traction alopecia or telogen effluvium. And the comment is, can you please see this patient? We're not, they're not getting better with telogen effluvium. We've supplemented iron. The patient's not getting better with minoxidil for presumed androgenetic hair loss. Many, many patients just benefit from a biopsy. CCCA is the diagnosis. We can even tell that many times without a biopsy. But if, if they had had a, a biopsy, these patients would have been started on treatment earlier for the scarring alopecia that they have. Or we would have not diagnosed traction alopecia. We would have realized that this is scarring alopecia, or we would have realized that this is alopecia areata. Biopsies are incredibly helpful for black women with hair loss. This is the message of this study. I really like this study. That is the simple message. It sounds too good to be true, but that is the message. We need to biopsy black women with hair loss more often than we do. We need to be a little less confident that we know the diagnosis and do more biopsies. A biopsy helped change the diagnosis in 70% of patients. That's an incredibly high number. Traction alopecia seems to be overdiagnosed. Too many black women are leaving the clinic thinking they have traction alopecia. This study teaches us that some of those patients have alopecia areata. Some of those patients have scarring alopecia, maybe psoriasis. Really nice study. Check it out. JAD, January 2023. We move on now to a study looking at the use of oral minoxidil in patients with breast cancer, hair loss after breast cancer, titled Efficacy of Low-Dose Oral Minoxidil in the Management of Anti-Cancer-Induced Alopecia in Patients with Breast Cancer, a retrospective study. It's from December of the JAD. So authors from South Korea, Kang and colleagues, set out to assess the efficacy of low-dose oral minoxidil in patients with breast cancer diagnosed with either persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia or endocrine-induced alopecia. So patients with cancer often come into clinic for two reasons. Sometimes they've had chemotherapy, and in the case of breast cancer, often have had taxane-based chemotherapy, and they haven't grown their hair back despite time passing, six months, nine months, a year. And if time has passed, more than six months, and patients haven't got their hair back, and they've had chemotherapy, we call that persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia. We used to call it permanent chemotherapy-induced alopecia, but we know that it's not always permanent. Sometimes we can get hair back. Some patients have endocrine therapy-induced alopecia, where they've been on selective estrogen receptor modulators or aromatase inhibitors, and they have hair loss. We call that endocrine therapy-induced alopecia. So it's important to understand persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia, and it's important to understand endocrine-induced alopecia, because there's a lot of patients that will present to your clinic with these concerns. So the failure to regrow hair after six months after chemotherapy is called persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia, prior terminology permanent chemotherapy-induced alopecia. Endocrine therapy-induced alopecia refers to hair loss following endocrine agents like aromatase inhibitors or selective estrogen receptor modulators. These agents are widely used. They've been shown to have benefits as adjuvants for premenopausal women with breast cancer or postmenopausal women with early-staged and advanced breast cancers. These agents play a really important role. 
And in this study, patients with combined PCIA and EIA, permanent or persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia, or endocrine-induced alopecia, were those women who failed to grow their hair back with use of both chemotherapy and endocrine agents. So there were 20 patients in this study with persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia, 69 with endocrine-induced alopecia, and 11 with combined PCIA and EIA. In 95% of patients with persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia, taxanes were the drug of cause. Not surprising, that is one of the most important causes of persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia. Paclitaxel and docetaxel are common agents. In endocrine-induced alopecia in this study, selective estrogen receptor modulators were the cause in 68.1% and aromatase inhibitors in 31.9%. The appearance of hair loss differed in the two groups. In patients with endocrine-induced alopecia, like the aromatase inhibitors, hair loss was mainly in an androgenetic alopecia pattern. That's important to be aware of. Patients on these drugs often come into clinic looking like they have androgenetic hair loss. And when you biopsy it, sometimes it appears like androgenetic hair loss. So we need to be aware of this, that patients on aromatase inhibitors, selective estrogen receptor modulators, may look like they have androgenetic hair loss. But one year ago, before they had chemotherapy or the use of these drugs, it didn't look like they had androgenetic hair loss. This is endocrine-induced alopecia. In patients with hair loss from persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia, the hair loss looked like androgenetic hair loss as well in 60% of patients, but it was diffuse in 40% of patients. Now, the treatment outcomes were evaluated in 56 patients. 19 patients were treated with topical minoxidil alone, and 37% were treated with topical minoxidil and oral minoxidil, low-dose oral minoxidil. A complete response was found in 13.5% of patients in the combo group, low-dose oral minoxidil plus topical minoxidil, compared to 0% having a complete response with topical minoxidil alone. When patients were looked at in terms of whether they had a partial response, some improvement, 78.4% of patients in the combo group, low-dose oral minoxidil and topical minoxidil, had a partial improvement compared to just 52% with topical minoxidil alone. So patients in the combo group had better outcomes. Typical side effects were experienced with topical minoxidil and oral minoxidil. Hypertrichosis was present in 13.5% of patients in the combo group. Periorbital edema in 5%, that's swelling around the eyes. So really nice studies suggesting that in persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia or endocrine-induced alopecia, that the combination of topical and oral minoxidil probably gives better results than topical minoxidil alone. Now, not every patient should be on combo group. Not every patient should be on topical minoxidil. But provided we've assessed the clinical information, the risks and the benefits, then it may make sense. And perhaps we can have better outcomes with the combination of oral minoxidil and topical minoxidil. So really nice study. We move on now to looking at a skin cancer called cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, specifically a type called folliculotropic mycosis fungoides. We don't talk about this a lot, but I think it's really important for us to be aware, especially hair specialists that are seeing a lot of 
refractory conditions, conditions that are not looking like other conditions that we're familiar with, like telogen effluvium and alopecia areata and androgenetic hair loss. So let's spend some time talking about this skin cancer. It's a study by Paulino and colleagues. They present a really nice study in JAD case reports of a patient with comedonal follicular trophic mycosis fungoides. That's a mouthful, but this is a type of skin cancer. Mycosis fungoides sounds like a fungus, but it's a, it's a skin cancer. And follicular tropic means the skin cancer, this lymphoma, finds its way into hair follicles. Folliculotropic. So they report a 68-year-old white male presenting for medical attention with a two-year history of asymptomatic comedones, widespread over the body. He also had patchy alopecia of the scalp and eyebrows and total alopecia of axillary and pubic hair. So when you think of scalp hair, eyebrow hair, axillary hair loss, pubic hair loss, you want to be thinking about scarring alopecia, frontal fibrosing alopecia. You want to be thinking about alopecia areata. But you also want to be thinking about not only autoimmune conditions that are making it tough for hair to grow, but you also want to be thinking about things that are coming into hair follicles, gunking them up and just making it hard for hair to grow. And when you hear eyebrow hair loss in patients 65, 70, 75, I really think it's important for you to think about alopecia areata, frontal fibrosing alopecia, and lymphomas, as well as rare infiltrative diseases like leprosy sarcoidosis, other granulomatous diseases. But this is a really nice study of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. It's free online. Check it out. Paulino and colleagues, widespread and eruptive comedonal lesions with alopecia JAD case reports, November 2022. And the authors show this patient with these widespread comedones. And you're familiar with comedones from acne, blackheads, all over the trunk, eyebrow loss, scalp hair loss. When you have a, a case presentation like this, biopsies are what you need. When you have anything that, I don't know what this is, seems a bit different than what I expect. Never seen this before. That's, an, that's a signal you need biopsies. And sometimes you need more than one biopsy. Don't be afraid in challenging cases to do two biopsies, three biopsies. If you have something on the arm, something on the leg, something on the ear, something on the scalp, something on the eyebrow, you need to decide where you want to biopsy. But if something on the scalp looks different than something on the leg, something on the abdomen looks different than something on the toe, then you might need several biopsies. And you need to decide where it's easiest to biopsy, where it's going to leave a scar that's visible, where it's easy to biopsy. It's tough to biopsy the eyelid. Don't go for the eyelid. It's tougher to biopsy an eyebrow. Don't go for an eyebrow. But if there's something in the scalp and something on the abdomen, those are great sites. And so a biopsy of one of these comedonal areas showed a dilated follicular infundibulum, plugging, and a perifollicular band-like infiltrate of atypical T-lymphocytes. And so this is in keeping with a T-lymphocyte-mediated uh, lymphoma, T-cell lymphoma. Subsequently, this patient developed not only these bumps on the trunk, but erosive lesions on the trunk and limbs. Erosive lesions meaning they're breaking down. And a biopsy of these showed a 
again, these atypical lymphocytes showing a pattern of infiltration into the skin in a manner which is consistent with skin lymphoma. And when they're moving into hair follicles in this certain pattern, it was suggestive of this diagnosis of folliculotrophic mycosis fungoides, a T-cell lymphoma that wants to enter hair follicles, and a specific variant called comedonal folliculotropic T-cell lymphoma. So the authors point out that follicular lesions, these comedones, are a very typical presentation of folliculotropic mycosis fungoides. What's unusual in this case is that these comedones were the initial presentation. Folliculotropic MF is a variant of mycosis fungoides, this T-cell lymphoma, and involvement of the eyebrows is highly characteristic of folliculotropic MF, and that's why I wanted to present this with you. When you have eyebrow hair loss in patients over 60, you need to have your radar on for this may be something a little bit more atypical. This may be alopecia areata, not very common. This may be frontal fibrosing alopecia, not very common. This may be leprosy, that's not very common. This may be skin lymphoma, not very common. When you see patients in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 100s with hair conditions, I really think you need to take a deep breath and uh, have a sip of water and think that this may be something a bit unusual. If they have not had hair loss problems or concerns at age 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, and they come to your clinic in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, I really think you need to be on the alert that you may be dealing with something that's not too common. So the authors describe how these epidermotropic plaque lesions, several years after the comedones, is indicative of aggressive disease and poor survival. And we'll talk about this in a bit, but folliculotropic MF is associated with worse prognosis than traditional mycosis fungoides. This patient was treated with pedulated interferon alpha 2A and isotretinoin, and that use of isotretinoin helped the hair follicles keratinize better and help some of these new comedones not form as readily. And the patient partially benefited from this dual therapy. So let's spend a minute or two talking about skin lymphoma and folliculotropic MF. Skin lymphomas are a group of conditions that are not seen very often in hair clinic. But these are a type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. There's a monoclonal proliferation of malignant lymphocytes. And usually they follow an indolent course. Usually these don't kill patients, but they can, depending on the stage of the disease. Cutaneous lymphomas are relatively rare compared to other cancers, like basal cell and squamous cell cancers. About 3,000 patients in Canada, 30,000 in the U.S. are living with these types of cutaneous lymphomas, but they're probably underdiagnosed. And there's thought to be about 10 new cases of CTCL each year for every 100,000 people in a population. Patients usually present in their 50s and 60s, and males are more commonly affected than females. It's important for skin specialists, hair specialists, to be aware of skin lymphomas, the classification of skin lymphomas. We have mycosis fungoides, which makes up most of cutaneous T-cell lymphomas, about 39-40% of them. Then we have folliculotropic MF, pagetoid reticulosis, granulomatous slack skin. 
That's an MF variant. Those three are called MF variants. They make up 6% of CTCL. Then we have Cesare syndrome, where patients present with red skin all over their body. It's about 2% of cutaneous T-cell lymphomas. Then we have rarer and rarer cutaneous T-cell lymphomas yet. We have adult T-cell leukemia lymphoma, which is less than 1%. We have the primary cutaneous CD30 CD30 positive lymphoproliferative disorders. Those are making up about 20% of cutaneous lymphomas, including the lymphomatoid papillosis. Then we have subcutaneous paniculitis-like T-cell lymphoma, extranodal T-cell lymphoma, chronic EBV, EBV infections, and then the primary peripheral cutaneous T-cell lymphomas. So these are how we group cutaneous T-cell lymphomas. MF, or mycosis fungoides, is the most common type of CTCL. Now, folliculotropic MF, which this patient had, is a type of mycosis fungoides skin cancer where the hair follicles get invaded by atypical T-cells. As I mentioned, it's more common in men. But patients have these grouped papules, sometimes plaques. They can be in the head and neck area most commonly, sometimes on the forehead, sometimes over the eyebrows, sometimes in the scalp. And many patients have hair loss. That's why we need to be aware of them. And they are a wonderful mimicker. It can include scarring mimickers, non-scarring mimickers, diffuse hair loss, alopecia areata-like mimickers. The prognosis for folliculotropic MF is poorer than for classic MF. These atypical lymphocytes infiltrate deeper structures. They're harder for treatments to get into them because they're hiding out in the hair follicle. There's often delayed diagnosis. These are challenging to, to diagnose. And the overall survival depends on the stage how much is involved, whether they're just papules or plaques or tumors, whether they're invading lymph nodes, whether they're widespread across the body or just in a small area of the head and neck area. The survival is about 72%. That's the 10-year survival, 72% for skin-limited disease, but it drops to 28% with more advanced skin-limited disease. And when there's more advanced lymph node involvement at presentation, the 10-year survival is around 2%. So these are important for us to be aware of. How do we diagnose it? Well, you take a good history, you examine the skin, you examine the lymph nodes, you biopsy and biopsy and biopsy. You biopsy as, as, as many sites that you think are relevant, that you think could be different. And if you think the lymph nodes are involved, you probably have to uh, biopsy lymph nodes, have your colleagues, uh, your surgical colleagues biopsy lymph nodes. You need to order blood tests for CBC, liver function, creatinine, HIV, HTLV1, peripheral flow cytometry for looking for these atypical uh, markers. You're going to send patients off for CT scans of the chest and abdomen. You may do chest x-rays. And very rarely, if you're wondering about bone marrow involvement, a bone marrow will be done, but that's pretty rare. But you need a good head-to-toe skin examination, checking the lymph nodes, sending patients off for blood tests, and having biopsies done. The biopsies are stained for markers for these lymphocyte markers. And so it's quite an involved process, and um, you may have your colleagues assist you if you think there's a CTCL or a... Um, folliculotropic MF that you're dealing with, but uh, you really want a full examination, many biopsies, sent to a, 
a pathologist who deals with skin lymphoma so the proper markers can be done. Uh, you want to make sure that um, lymph nodes are examined, chest x-rays are done, CT scans are done if appropriate, and the appropriate blood work is ordered. And the treatment depends on the stage. And if there's just limited involvement, a patch on the forehead or in the scalp, you might use topical steroids and phototherapy. That's a common treatment for early stage disease. But the more involved the lymphoma becomes, the more you're likely to involve your radiation oncologist, your oncologists. But dermatologists may manage localized disease very often. And so in early stage disease, the folliculotropic MF, we might use what we call skin-directed therapies, topical steroids, UVB, PUVA, radiation therapy. If it's more refractive to, to treatment, you might use retinoids like isotretinoin, interferon alpha, total skin beam therapy, methotrexate, and that's often what's used for refractory disease, but also stage 2 disease. Stage 3 disease, you may use extracorporeal phototherapy. That's what's used in Cesare syndrome. And then more refractory disease, you'll be using traditional chemotherapies. And in early disease, dermatologists are managing these patients. The more and more advanced it becomes, these patients are being managed by oncologists. And so this is a nice reminder of how you really want to perform skin examinations in patients with unusual presentations. <clears throat> patients with hair loss need examination of the arms, legs, nails, mouth. Now, we don't always do that. Sometimes we're not comfortable with what we're looking for. But in challenging cases, that's what's needed. In challenging cases of hair loss, you need to say, can you roll up your sleeve? Or you need to say, can you change into a gown? You need to examine the abdomen. You need to examine the arms and legs. That's really important because that's how these diagnoses are, are uncovered. So in atypical cases of hair loss, you need good stories, good examinations, good biopsies, good blood tests. You need really good stories. How did this start? What hair loss is involved? Is it itchy? What makes it better? What's your family history? You need good examinations, not only of the scalp, Doc, I'm coming to see you for my eyebrow loss. That's good. I need to check your scalp. Nothing wrong with my scalp, Doc. I need to check your scalp. I need to figure out if there's papules in the scalp, redness in the scalp, scale in the scalp. It might not be causing hair loss, but there might be inflammation in your scalp. I need to check your arm hair, leg hair. I need to check your nails. And we need to do biopsies. We might not go for the eyebrow that you came in with, but we might go for the papule on your abdomen or the leg, or the arm, or the back of the neck. And we need blood tests. Blood tests are always dependent on the story. And so if a patient says, you know, I'm fine, then you may have a different set of blood tests than a patient that says, you know, I can't, I can't walk upstairs anymore. A patient who says, I can't walk upstairs anymore needs a pretty extensive autoimmune workup, including muscle enzymes. A patient who says, you know, I've got significant photosensitivity. I can't go out in the sun. I just get rashes on my arms and my face. That patient might need an ANA or an anti-nuclear antibody. And so our blood tests are determined by the story. I think that the key is in these complex presentations is that we need good histories, really good histories, good physical examinations, good biopsies, plural, and good blood work. But I just went into a little bit more depth with this today because... Q 
cutaneous T-cell lymphoma is something that can present in the scalp. And folliculotropic MF is this variant that affects the head and neck. And we are specialists largely in the head and neck, in the hair in the head and neck. And so we need to know this condition. We move on now to another very nice study looking at a condition called atrichia with papular lesions, APL. I want to talk today about APL because it's important for hair specialists to know about. Is the title, Atrichia with Papular Lesions Confirmed Via Genetic Testing, a case report published in this journal, Curious. I really like this journal, Curious. It publishes a lot of interesting, interesting reports. So what is atrichia with papular lesions? Well, it's a condition that mimics alopecia areata, so we need to know about it. And the authors here from the U.S. present a five-year-old girl with classic findings of atrichia with papular lesions, or APL, and it was confirmed via genetic testing. So the authors describe a five-year-old who presents with absence of the majority of scalp hair. She had a small amount of black scalp hair in patches at birth, but then between 6 and 12 months of age, she lost the majority of hair with no regrowth. So the tendency here when you see a patient like this is, oh, this is alopecia areata. The reason I'm pointing this out to you today is that this is not alopecia areata. This is not the autoimmune condition alopecia areata. This is a genetic condition, and there's many genetic conditions associated with complete loss of scalp hair. In addition to scalp hair, this five-year-old had loss of eyebrows and eyelashes. Not complete, the eyebrows and eyelashes were sparse. She had undergone genetic testing, and they found a mutation in the hairless gene. This condition, atrichia with papular lesions, is due to a mutation in the hairless gene. Her mother was tested. She was also having a mutation in the hairless gene, but she was heterozygous. She had normal scalp density. So if you look online, this is free in Curious with Creative Commons license, you can see this patient with loss of scalp hair. And when you look at this patient, you will think to yourself first, this looks like alopecia universalis. I see lots of patients with alopecia universalis. This looks like alopecia universalis. When you look up close, you see two things. You see whitish streaks. And you might say to yourself, I see lots of patients with whitish streaks. You have bumps on your scalp from falling on the playground. That's true. So the whitish streaks can be pretty subtle. But there are these little papules. There are these little tiny bumps that are hard to appreciate if you don't look up close. But those are the papules that are part of atrichia with papular lesions. And they're not only on their scalp. They can be on other areas of the body. But it's important to appreciate these bumps. Because that's what helps differentiate this condition, atrichia with papular lesions, from another condition called alopecia universalis congenita, which is also due to the hairless gene mutation. So this condition, atrichia with papular lesions, was first described in 1954. It's a rare form of hair loss that's characterized by diffuse, complete, irreversible hair loss that begins shortly after birth. It's usually complete by the first year of life. And at one or two, it varies, but you start forming these cysts, these keratin retention cysts that present as papules. 
And these papules can affect many areas, scalp, arms, legs. There's no other defects in nails, sweat glands, or teeth, the so-called ectodermal structures, to suggest this is an ectodermal dysplasia. They have normal hearing, normal development. Consanguinity might be present. And in the early literature with atrichia with papular lesions, this was thought to be really important, that children who had atrichia with papular lesions often had parents that were related. But it's become more appreciated that that is not as much of a feature as once was appreciated, and that many of these children don't have parents that are related. So the diagnosis of atrichia with papular lesions needs a detailed clinical and family history as well as DNA sampling to try to identify this hairless gene mutation. And you have to specifically send off blood to say, can you test for the hairless gene mutation? We don't send off blood saying, can you test all the mutations that are possible in a five-year-old with hair loss? You specifically ask your, your genetic specialists, I think this child has atrichia with papular lesions, can you test for hairless gene, and they'll also test for the vitamin D receptor as well, which I'll explain in a minute. Zlatogorsky is a dermatologist in Israel who has contributed greatly to many areas of dermatology, but had a very nice study in the Journal of Investigative Dermatology in 2002, along with Angela Cristiano, titled Clinical and Molecular Diagnostic Criteria of Congenital Atrichia with Papular Lesions. And in that study from 2002, the authors put forth major criteria and minor criteria for atrichia with papular lesions. The major criteria, of which you need four out of five, include permanent and complete absence of scalp hair by the first few months of life, widespread milia-like papules on the face, elbows, thighs, knees, from infancy or childhood, replacement of hair follicles by follicular cysts on biopsy, mutations in the hairless gene confirmed by genetic testing, and you've excluded vitamin D-dependent rickets, type 2 vitamin D-dependent rickets, which we'll talk about. So you need four of those five. And there's minor criteria that are supportive. And Dr. Zlatogorsky puts forth several minor criteria, like a family history of consanguinity, absence of pubic and axillary hair, sparse eyebrows or eyelashes, normal growth and development, normal teeth, normal nails, normal sweating, so it's not an ectodermal dysplasia, whitish hypopigmented streaks on the scalp, and lack of any response to therapy. Now, that was 2002. In 2008, Yip and colleagues put forth some revisions to that because it was increasingly recognized that maybe a lot of patients with atrichia with papular lesions don't have this consanguinity, this, these mom and dad that are related, second cousins, cousins, etc. And so they removed that from the criteria. So what is the hairless gene? What does it do? Mutations in the hairless gene contribute to atrichia with papular lesions and contribute to another condition called alopecia universalis congenita. The hairless gene helps hair follicles in the first adult hair cycle to leave catagen and 
fall out and come back in in the second hair cycle. So that's a big responsibility of the hair follicle in its first growth cycle after birth. And in the absence of the proper hairless gene, the hair bulb undergoes premature apoptosis. And that's why you get hair loss. So catagen hair follicles are unable to re-enter antigen. So hairs only get one cycle to go through and then they die by apoptosis. And that's what atrichy with papular lesions is about. And so when you see children and you think, ah, oh, I wonder if this is atrichy with papular lesions. Mom and dad are saying they had hair at birth. It was sparse, but now they have no hair. I'm seeing this two-year-old, no hair. The two-year-old has been diagnosed with alopecia universalis. They want to go on a JAK inhibitor. I wonder if this isn't autoimmune alopecia areata. I wonder if this is atrichy with papular lesions. You need to be thinking about a differential diagnosis, which includes alopecia universalis congenita, which is also due to a hairless gene mutation, alopecia areata universalis, the autoimmune condition that we all know well, congenital hypotrichosis, vitamin D-dependent type 2 rickets, which is due to a mutation in the vitamin D receptor, but looks 100% the same, as well as ectodermal dysplasia. So that's the, that's the list of differentials. So mutations in the human hairless gene occur in atrichia with papular lesions, and they also occur, occur in alopecia universalis congenita. Don't confuse alopecia universalis congenita with the well-known condition alopecia universalis. It's different, just has the same name. The skin in alopecia universalis congenita, or AUC, is normal. Whereas in atrichia with papular lesions, there's these cysts, these milia-like growths over much of the skin. But they look similar. Hair is lost in both conditions in the first months of life. There can be sometimes some eyebrows and eyelashes remaining, but usually it's gone, but can be sparse. But atrichia with papular lesions and alopecia universalis congenita look the same, except for the papules. If you're seeing a child without hair on the scalp, and mom and dad say it, it was lost first months of life, then there's three really, really important conditions for you to rhyme off. Atrichia with papular lesions, alopecia universalis congenita, and vitamin D receptor mutations. Type 2 rickets. If you can't find bumps on the scalp, and it comes back with a hairless gene mutation, then it's probably alopecia universalis congenita. So vitamin D-dependent um, receptor mutations, type 2A rickets, is really important to know about. It's not due to a hairless gene mutation. It's due to a mutation in the vitamin D receptor. But hair loss happens in the first few months of life. There can be eyebrows and eyelashes lost. Usually there is. It looks just like atrichia with papular lesions. They have cysts. They have these milia-like cysts. And when you do a biopsy, it looks just like atrichia with papular lesions. So this VDR, the vitamin D receptor mutation-dependent rickets type 2A, looks just like atrichia with papular lesions. And there's a very nice report in the Archives of Dermatology from 2005, which biopsied patients with type 2A rickets, the vitamin D receptor mutation condition, and atrichia with papular lesions. And what they showed is the histology is the same. And that's really important because the clinical and histologic findings of 
vitamin D receptor mutations, type 2A rickets, and atrichia with papular lesions is uh, very similar. And so the key really is getting your genetics colleagues on board. If the skin is showing papular lesions and you have a hairless gene mutation, that's called atrichia with papular lesions. If the skin is pretty normal and you have a hairless gene mutation, uh, that is alopecia universalis congenita. If you have loss of hair in the first few months of life and you have a vitamin D receptor mutation, that is the likely the vitamin D receptor mutation type 2A rickets, and you'll want to evaluate bone health as well. So it's important not to confuse these for the autoimmune condition, alopecia universalis. That's very different. Most children do not present with alopecia universalis in the first year of life. Most children do not even have patches in the first few months of life. Alopecia can affect children, absolutely. It can affect children under one, but it's very rare. It often affects children, yes. But very rarely do they present under one year of age. And if they do, they're usually having patches. A few patches here and there. Complete hair loss under the first year of life is not common for alopecia universalis, the autoimmune condition. And so if you are seeing a three-year-old child and mom and dad say, oh yeah, they developed these, these areas of hair loss at four months and then by six months it was gone, don't be thinking about the autoimmune condition. Could it be? Sure, anything's possible, but that's not how alopecia presents. We don't have any treatment yet for atrichia with papular lesions or alopecia universalis congenita, these hairless gene mutation conditions, or the vitamin D receptor condition. Um, but hopefully that will change in the future. Finally, I'd like to review with you a really important paper by Atala and colleagues in the Journal of Hepatology titled Risk of Liver Fibrosis Associated with Long-Term Methotrexate Therapy May Be Overestimated. And the conclusion of this study is that the risk of liver fibrosis associated with long-term methotrexate therapy may be overestimated. I really like this study. It's, it's a paradigm shift in how we think about methotrexate. And the world is coming to believe that maybe methotrexate itself is not the key factor responsible for fibrosis, that perhaps it's the underlying metabolic conditions, especially diabetes, obesity, alcohol use, that is contributing to fibrosis in patients that are using methotrexate. So let's dive in. Methotrexate is a really important treatment for hair loss specialists to know about. We use methotrexate for alopecia areata in children and adults. Methotrexate has been around a long, long time. Yes, we're using JAK inhibitors more and more often. Absolutely. But they're not approved in all situations. And there's some uncertainty. We use methotrexate for some refractory cases of lichen planopilaris. Literature suggests that cyclosporin and methotrexate are highly effective treatments for lichen planopilaris. Now, if we can win with topical steroids, steroid injections, doxycycline, hydroxychloroquine, then those might be better options for lichen planopilaris, absolutely. But we can't ignore the literature that teaches us that, hey, methotrexate and cyclosporin are really effective treatments for lichen planopilaris, so we use them. Methotrexate is used for 
some patients with frontal fibrosing alopecia that are refractory, we use it for discoid lupus. We use it in some refractory patients with scalp dermatomyositis. And so methotrexate's in the toolbox. We need to know about it. It has a number of side effects, both short-term and long-term. Patients have changes in blood counts sometimes. They have nausea, loss of appetite, increased risk of infection. Sometimes methotrexate irritates the lungs. You can get a cough within the first few weeks. You can get sunburns, especially in areas that have been burnt in the past or have had UV exposure in the past. We call that radiation recall. Easy bruising, blurred vision, headaches, fatigue. You can get lung irritation. That gives the cough. And you can give liver irritation. And one of the feared complications of methotrexate has been the risk of fibrosis in long-term users of methotrexate. And that phenomenon has been recognized for 50 years. How common is fibrosis? We don't really know. Some degree of fibrosis, some minor amounts of fibrosis, is probably not uncommon. But how common is more significant levels of fibrosis? Well, in various studies, it it suggests that, well, maybe 5% of patients on long-term methotrexate in various studies have fibrosis. But the studies are challenging to interpret because they don't always take into account risk factors like diabetes, obesity, alcohol use. Some studies have linked fibrosis to cumulative use. So the more and more you use it, the more and more your risk goes up. But as more and more studies are re-examined, that has come into question. Is it really that simple that the more and more methotrexate you use, the more and more your risk of fibrosis goes up? New data is suggesting that no, no, it's not that simple. I think this is really important. Methotrexate's a valuable treatment option in the hair loss clinic. And we need to understand this treatment well. After all, it's been around many, many decades. And so in addition to knowing the new tools in the toolbox, we need to know the old tools in the toolbox. Because the old tools in the toolbox have long-term studies that, that we can feel good about because we can rely on them. So the best way to understand the risk of fibrosis from methotrexate is to perform liver biopsies. That's the gold standard for understanding the degree of fibrosis in the liver. But we don't do that often. And I should say that our GI colleagues, our hepatology colleagues, don't do that that often. Because liver biopsies are a big deal. And liver biopsies are associated with a risk of death and bleeding especially. About 7 out of every 1,000 biopsies have significant bleeding when you do a liver biopsies. And the risk of death is controversial, but it's probably around 1 in 10,000 when you control for all factors. But years ago, the number I learned years ago, 10, 15 years ago, was it's 1 in 1,000. More recent data suggests that, you know, with other factors controlled, it's probably 1 in 10,000, but that's not insignificant. So we don't do liver biopsies very often. There's a risk of bleeding, there's a risk of complication, there's a risk of death. But instead of doing liver biopsies, there's some non-invasive tests that can be done, including two groups of tests to kind of get a sense of how much fibrosis is going on. One is called transient elastography. One is called enhanced liver fibrosis tests. Those are blood tests. So one is an ultrasound test, one is a blood test. And these tests give a sense of how much fibrosis could be going on in the liver. We don't want to biopsy the liver, but we have these two surrogate markers of fibrosis, and they're pretty good. So the first is transient 
elastography. It's a measure of liver stiffness, and it's using ultrasound and low-frequency elastic waves to quantify liver fibrosis. The FibroScan is a test that is part of this transient elastography set of tests. And FibroScan is performed in some centers across Canada and across the world to measure a surrogate of liver fibrosis. So many of our patients have had FibroScans. The second is these blood tests called Enhanced Liver Fibrosis, or ELF tests, ELF. And the ELF score involves an assessment of three blood tests, the results of procollagen type 3N terminal peptide, tissue inhibitor of matrix metalloproteinase 1, and hyaluronic acid. So the results of those three tests give the ELF score. And based on your ELF score, you can get a sense of how likely is it that the patient has fibrosis inside their liver. And an ELF score greater than 9.8 indicates advanced fibrosis. And a score of 11.3 or more suggests that there could be actual cirrhosis. So these are great surrogate markers. These transient elastography, the fiber scan, and these ELF tests really do give clues to the chances of fibrosis without having to do a liver biopsy. They're non-invasive. And these are the two most validated non-invasive biomarkers to evaluate liver fibrosis. So that's a background to understand this study. Atala and colleagues set out to evaluate the risk of fibrosis in patients with psoriasis and rheumatoid arthritis who are using methotrexate. And they used those two surrogate markers to evaluate fibrosis. So from 2014 to 2021, eligible patients with rheumatoid arthritis or psoriasis were recruited from six centers in the UK. Patients with methotrexate used for more than six months were part of one group, and the unexposed group were patients that had never used methotrexate. Patients had the ELF blood test done, and they had liver stiffness measured through um, the FibroScan test. There were 999 patients in the study. 876 had used methotrexate. 123 were unexposed. Patients in the methotrexate group were slightly older, more likely to be female, and more, more often uh, diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. In the unexposed group who'd never received methotrexate, they were more likely to have consumed alcohol and have used NSAIDs and metformin. No difference between those two groups, methotrexate users and non-methotrexate users in ethnicity. Most patients in these groups were white. The differences in these two groups between diabetes, obesity, hypertension, high cholesterol, and uh, metabolic-associated uh, non-alcoholic liver disease were not different. So between these two groups, there was no difference in liver enzymes between methotrexate users and non-methotrexate users. Patients in the group that were not using methotrexate had a higher median liver stiffness score. Most patients in the group that didn't use methotrexate, more patients in the group that did not use methotrexate, had met the cutoffs for cirrhosis. There was 11.6% of patients that met the cutoff for cirrhosis in the non-methotrexate group compared to 5.5% in the methotrexate group. And in multivariate analysis, so in more sophisticated statistical analysis, neither the cumulative methotrexate dose 
nor the duration of methotrexate use had an association with the fiber scan measurements of liver stiffness. The strongest independent association with liver stiffness was type 2 diabetes. And patients with type 2 diabetes had a threefold increased risk of having liver stiffness compared to patients that didn't have diabetes. Other factors associated with liver stiffness or these abnormal fiber scan results were advanced age, male sex, and high BMI, body mass index. What about the ELFs? The ELF scores were not statistically different between the methotrexate users and the non-methotrexate users. 2.9% of patients from each group had an ELF score above 11.3, indicating cirrhosis, but there was no difference between those two groups. The factors associated with an elevated ELF score were age, body mass index, and the regular use of NSAID, non-steroidal antiandrogens. This is a really important study. As we move into this new era of using all different sorts of immunosuppressants, I think we really need to understand our new tools and our old tools. We need to understand them because we're, we're going to increasingly be asked to compare them. And methotrexate's been sitting there in the toolbox for a long, long, long time. And we know side effects like nausea, changes in blood counts, um, fatigue. But this issue about liver fibrosis has been sitting there kind of not entirely clear what to advise patients. The emerging data is suggesting that the drug itself may not have as direct of a link to fibrosis than we once thought. It may be the underlying metabolic conditions like diabetes, like obesity, that are contributing to this risk. And that may be why certain groups of patients are at increased risk for liver fibrosis. It's not the drug, it's the disease itself which is changing their risk for metabolic syndrome. And so methotrexate is a good example of a medication that's helpful for hair loss issues, but that its use is limited because of, yes, true side effects. No one wants to be nauseous. No one wants to be fatigued. But there's limited specialists that feel comfortable prescribing methotrexate. Dermatologists have a lot of training in uh, the use of these drugs, but other types of hair specialists that enter the field may not feel comfortable. It, it's a big-time drug. At high doses, methotrexate's a chemotherapy a medication. At low doses, it's an, it's an immunosuppressant. It's a significant immunosuppressant that we need to respect. And as well, patient and prescriber views, both true and not true, also affect how we prescribe it. And it's the risk of fibrosis that is a side effect that we, we worry about in our field and it leaves many uneasy. But this study is teaching us that the drug itself and the cumulative dose and the cumulative number of years used may not have an impact on fibrosis as we once had thought. It may be the underlying diseases in the patient. So the study suggests that young, healthy, non-diabetic patients with low body mass index may be at low risk overall for developing fibrosis. And if you don't use alcohol often, your risk is probably less and that neither the methotrexate cumulative dose nor the number of years here, the median number was six years, was associated with liver fibrosis using the FibroScan or the ELF scores. So the data is reassuring, at least to some degrees. Our hair loss patients with diabetes 
obesity, advanced age, significant alcohol use may not be the best candidates for methotrexate. These may be patients with whom there may be an increased risk. In this study, diabetes was one of the most significant risk factors for liver fibrosis or liver stiffness. And in other studies, alcohol use has been felt to be important. But these surrogate markers like FibroScan and the ELF test may be reasonable. For many years, this procollagen type 3N terminal peptide has been used to assess liver fibrosis in patients receiving methotrexate. Certain groups have been using this to monitor liver fibrosis as a bona fide test. It's been validated for certain types of liver diseases, including non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. So other studies, in addition to this Atala and colleagues study, have provided pretty reassuring news that prolonged methotrexate exposure is, is not worsening clinical outcomes. Conway and colleagues in 2015 performed a meta-analysis of 32 randomized controlled trials of methotrexate versus some sort of comparator in adults with rheumatoid arthritis or psoriasis or inflammatory bowel disease, and they found that exposure to methotrexate wasn't associated with a risk of cirrhosis, liver failure, or death. And a new study in the Journal of Investigative Medicine by Chima and colleagues is titled Review of Existing Evidence Demonstrates that Methotrexate Does Not Cause Liver Fibrosis. And their conclusion in that study was that the existing evidence suggests that methotrexate does not cause liver fibrosis. And that the fibrosis that patients experience is more likely caused by their underlying metabolic diseases or chronic liver diseases that the patient has. And that it's confounding factors like diabetes, obesity, chronic liver disease that is contributing to the risk. So I think these are really important studies. And so taken together, the results of Atala and, uh, and colleagues and other studies is suggesting that the risk of fibrosis directly attributable to methotrexate may have been overestimated. And some of the risks in rheumatoid arthritis and psoriasis may be due to the inherently higher risk for metabolic syndrome and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in these patients. So I think this is really important that we need to do better studies in our alopecia patients, our scarring alopecia patients like lichen planopilaris, our alopecia areata patients. We don't really have a good understanding of the risk in these specific groups, but it would seem that young patients, healthy patients, non-obese patients that don't have diabetes and don't have chronic liver disease under the age of 60 should have a pretty low risk of fibrosis with methotrexate. And I think that's really important. What we do need to keep in mind is that alopecia areata is associated with an increased risk of metabolic syndrome. Lichen planopilaris seems to be associated with an increased risk of metabolic syndrome. So do patients with alopecia areata and LPP have an increased risk of fibrosis with methotrexate? We don't know. But I think this data is, re is reassuring that in our young healthy patients that the risk should be very, very low. And that when we review the literature of methotrexate-associated fibrosis, we need to review it in context with the new data and how we think about this and some good multivariate analysis looking at what really are the risk factors. It doesn't seem to be the cumulative dose of the drug, and it doesn't seem to be the cumulative use. For years and years and years, we've tallied up 
How much methotrexate have you used so far? Add it up. How many grams? If you use so many grams, you're going to the gastroenterologist for an opinion. Should you have a liver biopsy? And it really was that simple. Oh, you've used methotrexate for three years, four years. I think you should see the liver doc. I don't know if you need, I don't know if you need a liver biopsy, but go see them, see what they say. This data is so important because it's teaching us that in really low risk patients, that, you know, certainly these surrogate tests of transient elastography with a fibro scan and these ELF tests, especially procollagen and terminal peptide, these are good tests which give us some sense whether we need to be worried or not. And we get a good sense if we should be worried or not even before we start the drug at all in terms of the patient's baseline risk factors. So that's it for today. Thanks for joining me. This is week four of the evidence-based hair podcast where we review really a, a potpourri of different studies and it gives us an opportunity to dive into topics that we don't talk about in the other weeks. We talked about the importance of scalp biopsies for black women with hair loss and how often doing a biopsy changed the diagnosis and changed the treatment plan. We're overcalling traction alopecia. We're underdiagnosing scarring alopecia. We're underdiagnosing alopecia areata. Have a low threshold for doing biopsies in black women with hair loss. Really wonderful study by Douglas and colleagues. A nice study from South Korea looking at the role of oral minoxidil in patients with persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia and endocrine-induced alopecia. There's lots of reasons for hair loss after cancer treatment or in patients on cancer treatment. And persistent chemotherapy-induced alopecia is one of them. So is endocrine-induced alopecia. Many women are on selective estrogen receptor modulators and aromatase inhibitors. The combination of oral minoxidil and topical minoxidil seems to perform better than topical minoxidil alone. And we looked at folliculotropic MF, this variant of the skin cancer called mycosis fungoides, a type of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. We talked about a gentleman with comedones on his abdomen that then ulcerated. And we talked about the topic of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma in a little more depth. I think the main message there is when you have patients in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, take a break, grab some water, take a deep breath, and go in and do your best. But keep in mind that there's a low threshold for diagnosing uh, other conditions and keep a low threshold for doing a biopsy. I think that's really important. Do a full skin examination, a full good history and a full skin examination. Those are really important in challenging cases and they're important for everyone, but they're really important in advancing age. We talked about atrichia with papular lesions. Again, not a common condition, but a really important condition for us to know about individuals presenting with hair loss in the first year of life. Atrichia with papular lesions mimics the vitamin D receptor mutation type 2A rickets. It mimics alopecia universalis congenita, except alopecia universalis congenita does not have the papules. Both alopecia universalis congenita and atrichia with papular lesions have a hairless gene mutation. Vitamin D-dependent rickets has the vitamin D receptor mutation. I introduced this study to you to remind you to not diagnose autoimmune alopecia areata in all children coming into your clinic with hair loss. That Many of these children have had hair loss in the first year of life, and that's a tip-off that this may not be alopecia areata. Sure, you can develop alopecia areata in the first year of life, 
but it's usually not complete. It is very unusual to see complete alopecia, the autoimmune condition in the first year of life. Most three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds who have complete hair loss from alopecia universalis, autoimmune alopecia, started out with patches in the first year of life, or it started at year two, or it started at year three, four, five, or six, or seven, or eight, or nine. Hair loss below age one is a very special entity with a very wide differential. And then we talked about the risk of fibrosis with methotrexate. Really important for us to know about. Methotrexate's a really important drug for dermatologists to be aware of. It can help wonders. It is a drug to really respect. There are many side effects with methotrexate, but the risk of fibrosis directly attributable to methotrexate may have been overestimated. So that's it for this week. I look forward to seeing you back here next week. It's the first Monday of the month of March. And we are marching forward with studies in androgenetic hair loss and alopecia areata. Always a very fascinating week on the evidence-based hair podcast because there's always some really incredible things going on in the field of androgenetic hair loss and alopecia areata. And I look forward to seeing you back here for the third episode of season four of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. We'll see you.